to say good evening again, so they're doing good evening, everybody. It's, it's one of those things, you go down, you go, come back up, it's, you got to do it again. Um, we are, if you're new with us, we are right at the beginning with really powerful passages of Scripture that you could spend years unpacking. Essentially what it is, is it's Christ's exposition of what true righteousness really is. So Jesus is sitting um, on a mountain somewhere, and he's preaching to uh, the people around him, his disciples are there, and, and he's changing the way that they think about what God expects from us when it comes to righteous living. As his disciples heard what Jesus was saying, what they began to hear was that honoring God with your actions is not enough. A new way to live, which has always been what God's expected of us, but new for these guys and new for us because we sometimes only make it about the outside. The way that God calls us to live is not just with outward actions of obedience, but also with inner thoughts, heart motive, and attitudes. Jesus says this is what is important. And it began to change the way that his disciples and those who heard him thought or think about the way we live our lives. It opened our eyes and their eyes to a new way of living. And that's why we've called this series A New Way to Live. And if you've been around, if you were here last week, you'll know how it unpacked um, the passage of Scripture just before the one we're going to unpack now. And Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And we, we unpacked that last week and understood what that meant. And what follows on from that essentially is six different comparisons between external performance and internal obedience. And so in the next passages of Scripture, the following passages of Scripture, Jesus unpacks stuff like anger. He unpacks stuff like lust and divorce and lying and hatred. And in each case, Jesus calls us to commit ourselves not only to obeying the outward commands of God's Word, but to obeying the inner commands. And trusting in the Holy Spirit to lead us into a place where not only our outward actions are glorifying to Him, but where our thoughts and motives and attitudes are glorifying to Him. That's what the Sermon on the Mount really is about. And so this evening what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the first of those six comparisons. And we're going to be looking at anger. And we're going to unpack that in four different headings or under four different headings. The first heading is this, do not murder. That's the first one. The second one is do not murder in your heart. The third is reconciliation is important. And the fourth is reconciliation is urgent. Now, I just want to say this, and I've shared this with other congregations I've preached at. Number two is like the bulk of the message. It is longer than any other point. So don't get panicked when we've just finished number two and it seems like we're running out of time. And we've still got two more to go. We're going to get to the end on time Try and allow God to minister to you without counting the points. Alright? Great. Let's read together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 26. This is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What an amazing passage of Scripture. We're going to start with point number one. Really simple. Do not murder. This isn't a complicated one. Right? This is, this is quite as simple. This is as simple as you get. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. What Jesus is doing there is he's approving one of God's commands which we find in the Ten Commandments. Specifically command number six, found in Exodus chapter 20 verse 13, thou shalt not kill. Jesus is saying this is what was said and I agree with it. This is good, don't murder. This is a good principle, right? This isn't something that we would disagree with. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who would disagree with this. If you had to stand up in a public gathering like this and go, guys, I believe it's not right to murder, I don't know if you'd find many people going, don't push your morality onto me. Right? If you do find somebody who does disagree with you, run fast and far away from them. You don't want to be hanging around someone like that. Every country that I know of has as part of its legal system or uh, law, the law that you can't just take somebody's life. And if you do, it's called murder. And the punishment for that is extreme. In some countries, you even incur the death penalty for taking somebody's life. It's a, it's a universal principle that we all buy into. It's one command from God given to us that whether you believe in God or not, we all buy into and adhere to. We see the sense in it. It's just intrinsic in our nature to understand that this is a good thing. Don't murder. It's so instinctive that we use it often as one of those uh, litmus tests to decide between a good person or a bad person. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but if you had to ask somebody, you know, are you a good or a bad person, the person might typically go, ah, I don't think I'm relatively good. I mean, I haven't killed anybody, right? That's how we, that's how we think, isn't it? I mean, that, that is how we think. It's just, there's this, there's this line that we sort of set up in our minds, and it's when I've murdered somebody, I mean, that's not the only test. There are a myriad of tests, but it's one of the most basic tests. If I haven't murdered anybody, then I'm, then I'm good. Bad people murder, good people don't. Because I haven't murdered, I'm basically good. So we set up in our minds and in our hearts and we, we like to draw these lines that with God don't exist. But we have to draw them because it's what makes us feel safe. It's one of those commands, one of those ideas, one of those rules or principles that make us feel safe. If there's a line that I haven't crossed and it seems far away from me, I feel comfortable. Because I'm not Hitler or Stalin or someone like that, Ted Bundy or Genghis Khan or Shaka Zulu. I'm not someone who's murdered millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people, even one person. And so I'm safe. I really feel good about myself. So we end up thinking. You might be having a bad day with the Lord and you know you're being disobedient to Him. He's challenged you to do something. You drive past Polesmore and you go, oh, 
Now I feel better because at least I'm not there. We always tend to justify what we're not doing or are doing that's sinful before the Lord by comparing ourselves to somebody that we think is worse off. We end up drawing these lines in the sand. But what happens in the next verse is amazing. What Jesus does is he takes the way we think about righteousness and the way God expects us to be living and he flips it upside down. And he, in a sense, in a sense, breaks up the world. He reveals to us that there's a deeper truth about kingdom living. There's a deeper way to understand and a greater revelation that we need to have about the holiness and righteousness of God. And so point number two is don't murder in your heart. And here's where Jesus goes in verse 22. He says, But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is saying is, I agree with the statement, but there's something that you haven't quite got yet. There's a, there's a deeper principle here, you see. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, what they had done is they watered down God's commands. They had defined sin by external action alone. And they had totally negated or totally um, rejected the idea that motives and thoughts and heart attitudes could be considered sinful. And this is what started to happen. They started to become self-conscious and self-righteous because they thought that just because I haven't done any outward sinful actions like murder, I am now good. And they were able to, in their minds, get themselves to believe that they could stand before God because of their own righteousness and their own good deeds. But Jesus strips away the legalistic interpretation of the command and he brings back the spirit of it. He opens their eyes at least to the truth. What Jesus teaches in verse 22 is that murder is not just a physical action, but it is a heart motive. It starts in the heart. That's what Jesus is saying. See, we like to stand off at a distance and make it a them and us thing. We like to draw that line. We like to point at other people and go, those are the baddies who are deserving of the fires of hell, but not me, not me. What Jesus does in verse 22, and what he does throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is he wipes away that line that we've drawn in the sand, and he draws his own circle around every single one of us, and he says to us, I'm the only one outside of that circle. Every single one of you is on the inside. Every single one of us. Jesus says, anyone who's angry with somebody, and insults them. Anybody who's angry with somebody and degrades them or impugns their character, in other words, belittles them and, 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 and robs them of worth with the words that you use publicly, privately, openly, loudly, silently, doesn't matter. Anybody who does that within their hearts, in that moment, that person has just committed an act of murder. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says that this sin and this sickness that we have, where we can call somebody a name out of anger or, or, or belittle them or degrade them, is just as punishable with eternal death as the actual physical act of murder is. That's what Jesus is saying. 
What Jesus is not saying, though, is that the emotion of anger is in of itself a sin, or that the emotion of anger is the same as physically taking somebody's life. We know he's not saying that because Jesus himself was angry. Jesus was angry with the moneylenders and the, and the market guys in the temple courts, and he, he, he went and he processed his anger and he made a whip and he went and he sorted the situation out. We know that. But I think there's a place where we need to cultivate righteous indignation and righteous anger. We need to get angry about some stuff. Anger in itself is not the problem. What Jesus is getting at here is what we choose to do in our anger is what is important. It's what we choose to do in our anger that makes us murderous in our hearts. It's how we respond in anger that's often sinful that results in us having a murderous heart. Jesus is talking about that selfish, self-righteous anger that rises up when our pride consumes us and we don't get our way and things aren't going how we want them to go. It's that anger that rises up that causes you to slander another human being. Whether it's to their face or open your side, it's that anger that rises up and will cause you, as Jesus says, to call them raka or fool. The word raka is the equivalent of calling somebody an idiot or a moron or an empty head or stupid, and the list goes on. There's far worse names than that, but I'm not going to go there. It's really a statement about the worthlessness of someone's mind. That we shout out when we're angry. Then Jesus says, if you call somebody a fool, that's really what you're doing is, is you're making the judgment on the person's character, on who they are. What you're saying when you call somebody a fool is that they're worthless, they've got nothing to bring, you're a nobody. You've got nothing to give to me, you've got nothing to give to people, you're a fool, you're worthless, get away from me. There's a difference there also, I've seen explain this, between calling somebody a fool in anger or calling them actually foolish. Jesus and Paul particularly said to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, he's not guilty of this thing. It's okay to call an action foolish, because some actions are foolish. But what Jesus is saying is when you degrade somebody and you call them out and you mock them or you, or you really run them down because you're angry and you go, you fool, there's a difference there. That's a murderous seed that's in your heart. So essentially what Jesus is describing here is contempt towards somebody. It's when you show absolute contempt towards them. There's this anger, that borderline hatred and rage. Jesus says when you are angry with somebody and you harbor contempt in your heart towards them, when you act in a way that belittles or degrades them, there's murder in your heart in that moment. This doesn't mean that we're actively contemplating the act of murder. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that that same sickness, that same dark seed, is full, that, that when fully expressed results in physical murder, is in your heart in that moment when you do that to somebody. What Jesus wants his listeners to, to, to consider and he wants, what he wants us to hear is the truth that the seeds of murder are in our hearts way before the physical action of murder ever takes place. Murder begins way back in your heart with the angry word or the angry thoughtless insult. That's where murder begins. It's the same spirit of death 
at work within you that could cause someone to physically murder another human being. That's what Jesus is saying. And just because you haven't reached the end of the road, just because you haven't and may never physically take the life of somebody, doesn't mean that you haven't been on that road. See, it's a spectrum. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the beginning of the road is your heart attitude, your thoughts, your motives. If you continue to go down that road, you're going to end up physically taking somebody's life. You may not actually get there, but you've been on the road. You've been on the road. If you think about murder and what it does, right? murder is, 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 is an ultimate expression of destroying a relationship. It's, it's, it's the final, most devastating thing you can do to destroy a relationship. It's, 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 an, it's the ultimate act of contempt towards somebody. You just hate them so much, you just want to rob them of life, you want them gone. It's the most final, it is irreversible. You're ending somebody's life, you're destroying that relationship. That's what murder in its fullness really is. But what Jesus wants us to consider is that there's also a real death that happens and that occurs when we speak sinfully out of our anger. So we can get ourselves into this place where we feel so good about ourselves and we feel like it's them and us and Jesus says, no, but in your heart you've committed murder. Murder ends relationships and so do your words because of the anger in your heart. James says... The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is what he means. He means because of our thoughtless words, because of our angry responses, our, our flippant disregard for people, relationships will die. There will be dissension between people, pain, heartache, separation, brokenness, animosity. Because of the way we speak to one another, because of the anger in our hearts. And here's the thing that is terrifying. God takes broken relationships or the destruction of relationships very seriously. Very seriously. And this is why Jesus warns us. He says that apart from His saving grace, a person that shows contempt and anger towards another is destined for the fires of hell as much so as the person is who physically committed the act of murder. You're not off the hook just because you haven't done it physically. Your heart is murderous. And so you deserve death. That's what Jesus says. John reiterates this warning in the book of 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. He says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. He doesn't say anybody who's murdered somebody is a murderer, because that would be stated in the obvious. He says anybody who hates a brother or sister. And he's got to say that because we don't want to hear that. We don't want to believe it. He's, he's got to teach us stuff that we don't necessarily want to hear. He says, if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. When we show contempt or hatred towards another person, here's why it's so serious. We show that we've lost sight of the fact that that's another human being created in the image of God. And somehow, because of our anger, we viewed them as lesser than us. And we feel like we have the right to speak against their character because we're justified, because we're angry. And I was preparing this message, I just felt like it would be so easy to move on to the next point. But I really felt the Lord saying, we need to steep in and sit in and allow Him to convict our hearts. 
We need to allow Him to bring the conviction that is so necessary in our lives sometimes because without it there would be no repentance and no healing and no forgiveness. We've just gone blindly like the Pharisees thinking that we're okay just because we haven't committed the physical act of murder. And so I wanted to ask you and I want to ask us some questions. In your life, in the significant or the seemingly mundane, is there anger? Is there rage? Can you see it? Do you recognize it? Is it an area where you get cross? Is it while you're driving your car, perhaps? And we like to joke about road rage, but God doesn't joke about that stuff. We like to isolate it. We, we want to just like separate it and pretend that it happens in a vacuum. No, it's just while I'm driving in my car that I get angry. Or it's just on the sports field when I get angry. No, that's you in your car. That's you on the sports field. That's you behind closed doors. It's not just in that area. There's this great analogy that I was... Um, someone used it to illustrate a point. Um, they used a coffee cup and it being filled with coffee. They just said, it's, it's like you're carrying a coffee cup full of coffee and somebody knocks you and the coffee spills out. You might get angry with the person for knocking you and be like, oh, you know, and I've got coffee all over me. The, the, the reality is that person did bump you. They may have bumped you and they may have done it on purpose or by accident, but the coffee was in the cup. They didn't put the coffee in the cup. And it's the same with us with anger. And that murderous attitude in our hearts, Jesus says, just because somebody does something to offend you doesn't mean that they put that thing in you. It was in you in the first place. When they bumped you, it came out. So when you're driving in your car and you're on the sports field or wherever it is that you are and anger comes out, it's not somebody else's fault. It's your heart condition, Jesus says. It's you. What about politically motivated anger? What about people who disagree with our political point of view or what's happening in the country? Do we have animosity towards people who disagree with us? Do we get cross people who don't share our point of view? Do we speak with anger and with hate towards those who disagree with our perspectives and our opinions? What about anger towards people who are closest to you? Your spouse, if you're married, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your, your children, your, your family, your friends. <coughs> See, what I found so devastating in my life is that my tiny little acts of murder have been reserved for the people who are closest to me. That's what I found. You come to church, you come to church, people view you as kind and loving, gentle, self-controlled. And sometimes it's just because we know how to act, we know what to say, we know what mask to wear, we know what veneer to cover ourselves with, we know how to pretend. But when you go home, when you go to school, when you're on the sports field, when you're in your little kingdom, when you're the king or the queen, and somebody crosses you or something happens that doesn't please you, all of a sudden you rage and there's anger. And what comes out of you is hurtful, degrading words whether spoken out loud or kept silently in your heart. The facade is swept away, the mask comes off, and what spews out of you, Jesus says, is murder. In those moments, it doesn't matter why you respond like that. It doesn't matter that you were disrespected, disobeyed. It doesn't matter that you were dishonored. That just bumped your cup, but what was in your cup came out. And it doesn't matter 
what caused the bump or how big the bump was. Jesus says what matters is what's in your heart. Do we see and do we realize that in those moments when we overflow with anger, do we see that when we curse people and slander them, when we call them names, that you're committing acts of murder in your heart? Do you see and do you realize how offensive and how dishonoring and how vile and displeasing that is before God? That's what Jesus wants us to see. It's what he wants us to know. I was so convicted when I was um, preparing this message because I got, I'm a married man and I'm wrong often. Okay? And I know I'm, I'm being serious. I'm not joking. I am. I'm, there's pride often there. And I thought about how many times I've had, as Mandy and I call it, intense fellowship moments in our home. And how I've walked away and I've said something under my breath, or I've thought something in my heart to my mind about her. How many times I've disciplined my kids in anger because I've expected a two and a half year old or a four and a half year old to respond like a 35 year old man or a 35 year old woman and half, try to justify my anger because of what they've done and how it's just been me actually. How I've spoken about people I don't know while watching the news or reading the newspaper or on Facebook. How I've thought about people, different opinions and perspectives are so convicted. And here's, here's what God challenged me with, and I want to challenge you with this as well. Do you see yourself the way you're supposed to see yourself is essentially what Jesus is asking the people when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount? Do you see yourself the way that you should see yourself? Do you see that it's not a them and us thing, or them and me? Do you see that the same sickness that would cause somebody to murder somebody physically is in your heart as well? Do you see that? And that it is as, as punishable with eternal death as the physical act of murder is? Do you see that? Do you recognize your need for Jesus? That's what he's getting at. Do you see that your self-righteous acts of refraining from doing something terrible like murder doesn't qualify you for eternity? Because just the thought of hatred towards a brother or a mumbled word that is degrading qualifies you for death eternally. Do you see that? Do you see that you can't help yourself? This is beyond you. This is out of your reach. If you do, that's good. It's a really good place to be. And I know we come to church often for a pick-me-up. This really isn't a pick-me-up, right? Until this point. Here's the good news. If you're in a place where you recognize that and you know that you are broken and you're going, then what do I need to do to be saved? Here's the good news. Jesus has made a way. Jesus has come. He's died on the cross. The blood He shed, the penalty He paid is enough to redeem you. Faith in Jesus redeems you from this. And only He can redeem you from this. Not your righteous, self-centered acts. But a faith in Him and an empowering of the Holy Spirit causes us to live lives that are glorifying to Him. And so here's what Jesus says. I have made a way. Trust in me. Repent of your sin and understand that you are as much in need of me. And that you should be able to cry tears of joy as much as the murderer does. Who says, only by the grace of God am I saved. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. And when that happens... We not only become a people who are free and forgiven, we become a people who stop the slanderous, murderous attitudes that we have and we become people who desire reconciliation. We heal, we restore, we bring life instead of death, which leads us to point number three. And remember, these next two are our children. 
We become people who realize that reconciliation is important. That's point number three. Jesus in verse 23 shows us the overflow of forgiveness, the overflow of realizing how terrible you are and that you're just as much of a murderer as the person who's sitting in Paulsville who's physically taken somebody. The overflow of receiving forgiveness for that is a person who overflows with a desire to reconcile and to bring wholeness and to boldness. It's a life where we realize that reconciliation is something we need to actively pursue. He says, therefore, because of how bad you are, because of what I've done, because you've received forgiveness, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. And when I read this as a young Christian, I often took this as like, uh, it's a command, but I didn't really think Jesus was being serious. Because it's such an outlandish thing to suggest that we leave church because somehow we've glorified the act of being here more than we've glorified or taken seriously the need to be reconciled to people. It's almost as if we think Jesus is exaggerating here for effect or to drive home a point. And when you think about the original context, it becomes even more outlandish. See, what, what Jesus was doing was he was speaking into the lives of Jewish people who would once a year travel to the temple to go have their sins forgiven. They would go to the Jewish festival, the forgiveness of Yom Kippur, they would go and celebrate it once a year and you would buy a gift that you would take to the altar and you'd be forgiven for your sins. Once a year this happened and you would travel for months maybe or weeks or days, you'd travel far, you'd save up for ages to get there. And what Jesus is saying is that when you get there, not just get there, but when you're at the altar, when you're about to bring your sacrifice, in that moment, if you remember that someone has an issue with you, he says, leave it there. And travel the days, the weeks, the months that you need to travel to get back to where you need to get back to. Spend the money that you need to spend. It's the equivalent of saying to us today, travel to the other side of South Africa. Get in your car and go if you need to. Go to the airport or save up, spend your savings and fly to Australia, go to Canada, go to the States, go wherever it is that you need to go to go make right with people. At the very least, pay for the phone call and make right with people. Don't offer your gift if you haven't pursued reconciliation and prioritized reconciliation. What Jesus is saying in this moment, and this is something we find so difficult, what he's saying is reconciliation in that moment is more important than worship. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying in that moment, reconciliation with somebody is more important than being at church. What Jesus is saying is that reconciliation is more important than going through the motions of your religious activities every Sunday. What Jesus is saying is that the most important thing is reconciliation, even more than fulfilling your church duties. That's what Jesus is saying. Instead of trying to do all of this stuff, honor the Lord by going to make right and be reconciled to your brother and sister. That's what's most important. I mean, isn't that what God's in the business of doing? Isn't that why we celebrate what He's done for us? Because He's a God who's reconciled the broken and lost people to Himself. He's in the business of reconciliation. And what Jesus is saying is that if you cannot copy me, if you cannot be reconciled to a brother or sister, your worship is not in spirit and in truth. It is not authentic. It is not genuine before me. It is not acceptable. First be reconciled. 
if you know that there's an issue, if it comes to mind, and in your heart you realize that there's something that's amiss between you and a brother or sister, go and make right. What's interesting about what Jesus says is he says, if you know that somebody has something against you, what he's saying is it doesn't matter who was right and who was wrong. It doesn't matter whether they offended you. It doesn't matter whether everybody that you've spoken to agrees with you. What he says is that relationship is strained and you know about it, go do something about it. What he's saying is that you need to be a person who does everything they possibly can to go and be reconciled. Because that's what God's done for you. He saved us from a murderous heart. He says, I've reconciled you to me. Now go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. The last point is this. Not only is reconciliation important, but it is urgent. Jesus, in the last part of our text this evening, sort of shares a mini parable. He says this, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together along the way. Or else your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and the officer might put you in prison, or probably will put you in prison, and you won't get out of prison until you pay the last penny. Jesus is not obviously speaking only about Christians who may be in trouble with people financially. This is a principle that he wants us to apply to our lives when it comes to reconciliation. He's saying it's urgent. Do it now while you're still on the way before you get to the journey's end. Do your reconciliation quickly. Don't allow your pride to stop you from making right with people. Don't allow your pride to stop you from honoring God. Do it now. If you're dragging your feet and twiddling your thumbs, if you're trying to justify why you haven't done it and why they should do it and how wrong they were and how right you were and how you know it's a problem but they need to take the first step. If you do that, Jesus says you're playing with fire because there is consequences. There are consequences for not reconciling with people quickly. In the case of our parable, yeah, this person, if they didn't make right quickly, the chances are that they're going to get thrown into prison and we're going to stay there for a very long time, if not for the rest of their lives. There are consequences for not laying aside our pride. There are consequences for not making right with people. Unresolved conflict is like drying cement. I've used this analogy and it's a little embarrassing because it means I didn't do a good job. But I've got these washing lines in my back garden right, that I put up. Oh, I think it's some washing lines. So I thought it would be a good husband. And put some washing lines up. Now they're not exactly straight, right? They sort of do that at the top. But that was because I was a little bit lazy and didn't have the right tools, but just wanted to get my hands dirty. And I put these poles into some cement and they sort of started bending out all the time. I was like, ah, I don't really want to fix them. And so the cement dried and the poles are stuck like that. I've got a great washing line, but the poles are still and bugs me. But I can't fix it because the cement is set. It's going to cost me far more time, energy, and efforts to fix it now than it would have been if I just sucked it up and fixed it while the cement was drying. That's sort of the principle that Jesus is speaking about here. He's going, fix the relationship now. Sort it out now. It's like an infection in your body that you just leave and think it's going to be alright. I got a spider bite once and someone told me, just stick some onion on it and strap it up and you'll be fine. <laughs> he was a paramedic. I trust him. <laughs> Seriously. I ended up in hospital for a week. <laughs> I was still got a massive scar on the back of my leg. 
joking. I'm not, I promise you. I will show you the scar that we walk on. That's what leaving a broken relationship is like. There's a stupid idea that you can just leave it and that you're honoring God and that God views your worship to Him as more important than your reconciliation with the brother or sister. God says, go and be reconciled. Deal with it quickly before it gets worse. Those are the things that God desires for us to do. And then I'm done. Just remind you of this. Don't think that because you haven't murdered somebody, you haven't got a murderous heart. Don't think because you haven't committed overt acts of sinfulness that your heart is not sinful to its core and corrupt and deprived of godliness and depraved. Don't think that. It's not us and them, it's us together who need the grace of God. And if you've received the goodness of the grace of God, then God says to you, act in a way that glorifies me. Be reconciled. Control your anger. Trust in me. Be empowered by the Spirit. Be salt and light. Be people who in this country are reconcilers. If I think about what's going on in our country, we just think it's a political thing. It is deeply a spiritual thing. It is at its very core a spiritual thing, the division and the brokenness in our country. The only way this country is ever going to be unified is not if we share the same political views, not if all of us have the same amount of money. The only way we're going to be reconciled is when the Spirit of God changes the heart of people and we see each other the way that we should. And that is never going to happen in this country unless it comes from the church. We are God's people. We are His A-plan. If we don't get it right with one another, if we can't be reconciled to one another, how on this good earth do we expect our country to be reconciled? Reconcile with somebody. Go make rights. Repent and trust Jesus. That's what Jesus wants us to get at. Let's pray and call worship to you. Father God, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that we can sit under the conviction of your word and of the spirit. And I want to pray, Lord, that we would be excited when you bring conviction and rebuke and correction. Lord, I want to thank you that you are a father who loves us so much and you would discipline us and bring us in line and cause us to be more like Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that there would be restoration that happens, relationships I pray that they would be redeemed and restored and made new. As we begin to worship you, God, may we worship you in spirit and in truth. And I want to charge you tonight, if you're here, and God has laid somebody on your heart, it is okay to leave. It would be hypocritical to tell you to stay. Go now and make right with the person you made right with before you bring your offering of worship to the Lord. Maybe you need to get down on your knees and just repent of the stuff you've carried in your hearts. Maybe you need prayer to deal with the anger that you're wrestling with and you can't understand where it comes from. We want to be able to pray for you. And if you'll be bold enough to come to the front during worship, we'll happily pray for you and pray for you afterwards. But don't run away from the Spirit of God and His conviction. Let us be like David who said, Lord, search me and know me. 
look at my heart and, and find out if there's any offense weighing me and reveal it to me so that I can repent of this and be more like you. Jesus, I pray for that and for our church in your name. Amen.